This is the Education Gadfly Show. Well, I'm looking forward to my 97th birthday so that I will be able to celebrate the uh, next the next 25 years. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Alyssa Schwing of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming my co-host, the Jake Arietta of Edreform, Brandon Wright. I'll take that. Um, you're talking about baseball, though. I you do- don't really know, or I- don't really care much for sports. Well, I don't really care a lot for baseball. I care for sports like swimming and things. Um, but I am originally from Chicago. You are from the Midwest as well. We mm-hmm. have offices in Ohio. I feel like this Baseball World Series is quite relevant and timely right now. Two Midwest teams. And I think it's a, it's a combined almost 200 years since one of them's won. Well, for, because of in Chicago, at least, it's because of the goat. I don't know what's happening over there in Cleveland. But I am not fr- afraid of that goat, but I, am, I have a healthy respect for this goat right now. <laughs> but I'm rooting for Chicago. So am I. All right. Well, and today we have kind of the two titans of Ed Reform. We've got Brandon and we're joined by Checker Finn, Fordham's founder. Welcome, Checker. Right. A confirmed goat's milk drinker. I'm you ever drink goat's milk? Really? Nah, but that's uh, good for you if you do. I'm fed goat cheese. I don't think I've ever had goat milk. Shove, please. Well, we are speaking with Checker today, not about any goats, but about a book that he and Brandon, along with Bruno Mano, just came out with yesterday, Charter Schools at the Crossroads. Now it's time for the Ed Reform Update. And we're back for the Ed Reform update. And as I said, we're talking about uh, the charter book today. So my first question about after I read the book um, was, they're not really an underreported or an understudied phenomenon in Ed Reform. And you guys last year wrote a book on gifted education, which is arguably not as prominent as charter schools. Why did you decide to tackle such a well-studied or what? very much talked about topic this time around. You could say well studied and and badly studied uh, because one of the uh, important points about charters that we do go into at some length in the book is the extreme variability mm-hmm. of what the various studies have found. So there's no real consistency in, in the studies and we've done our best to uh, look across them, uh, pull together the strands that are worth pulling together. But why did we do it now and did it in a bit of a hurry is because this is the 25th anniversary of the nation's first charter law. Mm-hmm. Almost everybody listening to this podcast is probably tired of hearing that fact. <laughs> but 1991 was Minnesota's charter law, the first ever. And we wanted to hit the 25th anniversary year. And we did. That you did. Um, one of the things that you note, and as our listeners who know that it's the 25th anniversary know, is that the charter movement was in part um, kind of seated by Albert Schenker, who had kind of this vision of charters as, you know, the incubators of ideas and a place where you could experiment and then scale new innovations in education. How much of that vision do you, would you argue has been realized? Schenker's one of many parents with, and there were many ideas. And part of what's interesting about this is how many, how many theories and, and goals and themes and parents went into mm-hmm. starting charters, which is one of the reasons actually they've done so well is because there's so many different uh, sort of versions and models scattered around the country. Schenker's own version, vision was teacher-led schools. Um, remember, he was head of the mm-hmm. teachers union. Um, others really had this kind of laboratory for the districts to learn from model. Others wanted to liberate poor inner city kids from terrible schools and give them an alternative refuge. Multiple theories here. The, the lab part has gone not as well as one would hope. We cite a few successful examples in the book. But um, it lab findings, even when successful, and there have been a bunch in the charter world, only get replicated by districts if districts are interested in, in changing. Mm-hmm. And a whole lot of districts have been so uh, anti-charter that they haven't wanted to pick up anything innovative from charters or, or often from anybody else. Sorry, Brandon? Yeah. So you have sort of a big problem now with, with, with these schools um, now educating almost 3 million kids. Mm-hmm. There's uh, 7,000 of them. They're in 42 states, right? Um, and there's such a hotly contested issue now that 
in a lot of places, um, charters are just fighting to exist, mm-hmm. um, fighting to expand. And when you're doing that and going up against so many foes, I'd say, it's hard to to say, well, we want to open these charters and we want these schools to be very experimental. Um, so you have this sort of balance where you're trying to expand, but because you're trying to expand and please so many different people, it's hard to create schools that really innovate all that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and then beyond that, a big problem with charters and one of the reasons why they're so contested is that some of them don't do very well. Mm-hmm. So do you just take the charters that actually work well and expand those? Or do you try new things? If you try charters that change things... Like a gifted ed school or a STEM school. What do you do from a PR standpoint when some of them fail and some of them will, right? So there's there's all of these sort of all all of these sort of uh, different different forces that you have to balance if you're actually a proponent of these schools and want to see more and better charters. Mm-hmm. You both kind of already have touched upon the resistance to charter schools, and would you categorize it based on you know what you guys found as actual outright resistance and kind of people who are opposed to charter schools, or more it's a disruptive innovation in a huge system that has kind of been scaling and growing for years without a necessarily a clear plan. Like the public school system is huge and there's a lot of inertia there. That There are multiple sources of, mm-hmm. of res- pushback and resistance. Uh, there is immediate self-interest, for mm-hmm. example, from the teacher unions. There is bureaucratic uh, unwillingness to accommodate change or differences or, or alternatives or threats to your monopoly, mm-hmm. uh, as in the district. There's also a, I think, semi-legitimate philosophical or ideological aversion to doing away with what many people call the common school, Mm -hmm. Uh, the notion that basically everybody should attend the same kind of school rather than different kinds of schools. It's very democratic. It's democratic. It's an objection to school choice more broadly. Mm -hmm. Charters just happen to be the most prominent example today Mm -hmm. of the alternative that gets dinged for not being part of the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you guys, that's very true. And you guys have also both touched upon already the idea that schools sometimes fail in this charter vision. That was something that you just mentioned, Brandon. And the initial idea behind charter schools in this charter marketplace was that schools that failed would immediately get shut down and parents would kind of vote with their feet. Has that kind of been realized? Have these schools that have failed as charters been shut down? The sort of closed schools that don't do well works better in theory Mm -hmm. than on the actual ground where schools don't really fit into these binary categories where they're either good or bad. Some schools might do well with one grade and not so well with a different one. They might do well with math, but not science. Um, so, and if you close them, some are in school districts where the school that would replace them might be actually worse. Mm-hmm. So if a school isn't doing as well as you want it to do, as an authorizer, often you don't have a lot of power. Um, and there's sort of a struggle to figure out exactly what power they should have. Mm-hmm. Um, what can they do? Uh, so it's sort of a big open question. Well, having said that, it's important to note that something in the neighborhood of 1,100 charter schools have closed in the last five or six years. They closed for multiple reasons. Some of them are academic. Others are business failures, leadership failures, governance failures. Mm-hmm. Thirds of them, actually. Uh, they go and governance failures? Non-academic. Thirds non-academic. Uh, the academic failures generally are uh, closed down involuntarily, uh, usually by their authorizer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, there are a lot of academic failures that have not been closed down by their authorizer, uh, and uh, mm-hmm. that's a problem. Uh, it is understandable, however, for the reasons Brandon mentioned. It is uh, very hard to 
close a school that people like sending their kids to are as devoted to as to the neighborhood school, mm-hmm. which we're very familiar with. And as he said, often the alternatives for those kids are even worse. I mean, this is something we've lived with at Fordham. We're an authorizer mm-hmm. in Ohio. And not all of our schools are as good as we think they should be. Yeah. But do we close them? We've brought some in for what we call a soft landing over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is persuading them to close themselves gradually. Mm-hmm. Uh, We've done other things, but it's very hard to just um, throw 340 kids out on the street. Yeah, that's a really tough question for an operator or an authorizer. It's a moral question. Mm -hmm. It's not just a political question in communities, too. Yeah. Uh, You guys have both already touched on authorizing and the role that authorizers play. And in the book, you spend a lot of time discussing the fact that we don't really give authorizers who oversee the operators a ton of tools to deal with a school that's maybe mediocre or even really poorly performing. And it's kind of one of the biggest flaws that we kind of built in the Charter. Authorizing is one of the things that wasn't thought through very clearly at the mm-hmm. beginning. It wasn't built in. It's sort of like uh, uh, people deciding to, I don't know, have a baby and not realizing they'd have to have clothes or diapers or, or something. Goat's milk. <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, it's, it's, it should have been given more attention mm-hmm. than it was at the beginning. That's why many state laws about authorizing are, are clumsy mm-hmm. or, or incomplete. Uh, it, it still needs fixing in a lot of places. It's a crucial role because these are the oversight entities. And if the market isn't working perfectly... And if you don't want big government to come in with a heavy hand, mm-hmm. the authorizer is the intermediary, the quality control entity. With the benefit of hindsight, is authorizing kind of the one area that, you know, if you were to get into the time machine and go back to 1991 and be like, here's what you need to focus on. Is this the single biggest thing that you would tell those early pioneers to fix before we got to 2016? Or is there something else it's, that also comes into I play? I think it's maybe one of three. I think that the financing arrangements weren't carefully enough thought through. Too many mm-hmm. compromises were made. And I think the regulatory exemptions that the schools mm-hmm. should have uh, were not adequately secured. And so we have a triple problem here. We have a resource issue, which includes facilities mm-hmm. challenges. We've got a regulatory issue and we've got an authorizer issue. I think if I had it to do over again, those might be the three things I'd work on the m- most most urgently. Brandon? I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Checker's no, favorite no, words. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a good answer. Um, so those three things together, I think what you guys argue pretty convincingly have a really strong role on school quality. And we have kind of in the charter movement really switched from this quantity issue to let's build quality schools. But what do we need to do besides, is it just fixing those issues? What do we need to do as a movement to really incent schools to become of stronger qualities or help create stronger quality schools? Is it shutting them down? Is it not letting poorly performing schools even get started? Yes. It's all of those. A huge question, right? <laughs> you're, 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 you're essentially asking, how do we make How do we schools? fix everything? <laughs> yes. Um, and obviously there are so many things that play into Giving out, giving out who gets a charter in the first place is clearly very mm-hmm. important. Uh, monitoring their implementation is clearly very important. Uh, intervening where you can to fix things that are going wrong is very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, cloning what works is very important. If you've got good schools, let's have more of them. Mm-hmm. Shutting down disasters or redirecting them or rebooting them or something is 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 also very important. Uh, it would also be good to have a better functioning market with parents who were fussier about the academic performance of the schools they're sending their mm-hmm. kids to. Um, uh, awful like parents are subtle for important things like safety and convenience and, loca- mm-hmm. and location, but they should also be fussier than some of them are about academic performance. Mm-hmm. And do they know how to make that judgment call? So there's another better, a better functioning marketplace would help. You guys also go into this question of marketplace. Do you think there's any like state or city that does the marketplace either very well or better than other places. Because, you know, we work in Ohio and we've all seen kind of the marketplace there. And it's, I think we fondly sometimes call it the Wild West of charter marketplaces. Right. 
our three city profiles of DC, Denver, and New Orleans mm-hmm. all include versions of a centralized uh, market mechanism, kind of a common selection or lottery or mm-hmm. recruitment, and that includes information about schools. It includes a kind of single application you can file for multiple mm-hmm. schools instead of having to go door to door. Um, it they do have a better functioning uh, marketplace where they have organized it rather than simply treating each school as an independent bakery and people go looking for their muffin at uh, wherever they think they can find one. Sounds like you haven't had lunch, Checker, based on all of these food Muffins metaphors. and goat's milk. That's <laughs> my goal. It's a tasty lunch, right? They're very well balanced. Brandon, anything to add? In terms of places that do it well, I think he covered it. But for me personally, I think one of the biggest problems um, that face sort of functioning competition is parent information. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sort of new to all this, but I was on a panel yesterday and somebody who's been an authorizer for a long time um, said the line, parents know, know more about buying cars than picking their children's schools. And I think that's very true and also very terrifying. And if you're in a place where parents actually have true choice, or at least better choice than they, than they do in a lot of places, still one of the biggest problems is how do you actually tell a parent what each school is like, what it offers, what its culture mm-hmm. is, and all those things. And I don't have a good answer in terms of how to solve it, but it's something that that, that the sector needs to continue to work on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From the car analogy, there are two points worth drawing, I think. One is that uh, if you're out looking for new cars, there's all sorts of places you can turn for comparative information. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything from gas mileage to safety and crashes to uh, uh, comfort and the cubic feet in the trunk mm-hmm. and so forth and so on. Lots of places you can turn for information. The other point is you're spending your own money when you buy a car. Uh, it is mm-hmm. not a it is not a free good like a charter school, and so you might be more inclined to ask about value for money. So one of the things then, though, is kind of the question: What's the solution then to the parent information issue? Like, better parent information. <laughs> who, who gives the parents that information in a perfect system? It depends on the right. Like the state could, the school district could, a private organization could. Um, I don't think there's any one best answer. If a state chooses a certain way to improve the information that parents get, it just simply has to work. Um, but there are keep options. in mind that a lot of states the school report cards are obscure and hard to interpret. You need a kind of middleman to interpret things mm-hmm. that uh, are often kept obscure for mm-hmm. sometimes for uh, bad reasons, mm-hmm. uh, un- unlovely reasons. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, parents are often kept in the dark about school performance because people in the school system don't really want them to know very much. Uh, certainly not in time to make a decision. A number of Maryland parents got their kids' park resorts results from last spring mm-hmm. uh, a few days ago in the middle of October. Well, that's a little late for picking a new school for the current school year. Yeah, and conveniently also after the um, count day, count day yeah. which was infamous in the charter school that I taught at. We had a kid with the flu once who was there because it was count day. Yep. Took secretary one and picked her up and brought her in. Okay, so I'm getting the signal that we are almost at time. This was on the first 25 years of charter schools. Really quickly, what's your prediction for the next 25 years? Well, I'm looking forward to my 97th birthday so that I will be able to celebrate the uh, next the next 25 years. Uh, I, I We have a series of recommendations at the back of the book mm-hmm. uh, about how the next 25 years could and, in our view, should be somewhat different mm-hmm. from the past 25 years. We think chartering is an enormously flexible and promising instrument that can be used for many kinds of schools, for many kinds of needs. And it's also got the potential to be a governance reform mm-hmm. uh, that is an alternative to the geographically bounded district that with bureaucratic mm-hmm. management style that we have known historically. So we see great potential here, uh, and one of the reasons for the book is to propagate the possibility that the next 25 years will be different. Brandon? And I, of course, agree with everything you said. Uh, one important point, um, I think, is that charter schools are here to stay, um, in my opinion. Uh, they've they've, they've uh, 
expanded enough enough bases that they're a force. And um, the question is, how do they grow? Do they grow? In what ways do they grow? Me, though, and I sort of arrived here uh, on the panel last night. I think one of the biggest things that the sector and education in general has to do is figure out a way to make this less contentious. And obviously, I'm not on the ground. I don't know how to do this. Mm -hmm. It's so much easier said than done. But if you actually want to expand charters and you want the charters that you open to be innovative and new and high-functioning but flexible too, Mm -hmm. somehow you have to find a way for people to stop so vehemently going against them. Mm -hmm. very tall, hard to do, tall order, but, but, especially but, but these super days. important, I think. Yeah, tall order, especially these days. Stretch them in goat's milk. <laughs> that might, you know, let's try that, and then let's all come back here in 2041 and see how well that solution works. Okay. All right, well, thanks, thanks so much for joining us today, Checker. My pleasure. And up next, it's everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. And we're back with Amber. Welcome to the show, Amber. Thank you, Alyssa. Have you been watching the World Series at all? I haven't. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Join the club, so neither have I. One game. One game. One game. Okay, good. Just last night. So I can catch up. <laughs> so all those, like, or possibly seven. There's probably a recap online somewhere right here. It's a and, big and thing for most people. Favored, I'm assuming. Like the Cubs were favored, but now the Indians are favored after they won yesterday. Oh, one. Yes. Oh, oh, uh, oh, Brandon rightfully called me out on not actually watching the game. No, I, I know. It's kind of an American, it. isn't it? Oh, and I'm from Chicago too. Like I really should. I have a Cubs hat that Mike gave me yes. in my office. I really should be tonight. I, I was on a plane, and every seat had a television. I'd say about half of half of the plane. Had the game on, so yeah. it's not that American. I mean, apparently. it's it's odd like, because I feel like women are. I mean, surely there's studies on this, but I feel like women are more into football than baseball. I'm a basketball fan, but that's neither here nor there. More into football than yeah, than, right, than, than than would, yeah. right. Well, at any rate, it's a contest that will end in November, and we will be happy about the outcome. Unlike <laughs> another contest happening that month. Anyway, yes. what do you got for us today? I've got a new study. Let's change topics uh, by the American <laughs> Institutes for Research. And they did it for IES. It examines the impact of content-intensive math professional development on teachers' math content knowledge, their instruction, and their students' achievements. So this is like an hmm. age-old question, right? Like trying to increase teachers' content knowledge. And we often hear like, oh, yes, to make an effective teacher, you have to know your subject matter. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty reasonable assumption. So this study sort of examines that assumption. Right. Uh, they study a popular PD program called Intel Math which focuses on deepening knowledge of K-8 mathematics for teachers. The PD comprises 93 hours, which is a lot. As a former teacher, and you know, it's a lot of PD. I was happy when we got like 12 hours a year. (laughs) So it's total PD. The brunt of it is delivered over the summer. They get about 80 hours in the summer. That was in 2013 was the year that that they studied. Then during the 2013-14 year, they got about 13 hours. Okay, so to follow up. Yeah, okay. It focuses on the conceptual foundations of math and its interconnectedness across the levels, across the grade eight K levels, mm-hmm. K through eight grade level. They also get time to analyze student work on the topics that were covered in the PD. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of different. They get individual video-based coaching where they get feedback on the quality and clarity of their mathematics instruction. That's kind of cool. Particularly around how they explain mathematical concepts to kids. That's kind right. of cool. So pool study designed roughly 220 grade four teachers from 94 schools and six districts across five states participated in our favorite, a random assignment study RCT. within schools to the treatment group. So the treatment group received this big-time PD I just told you about. Mm-hmm. Or you were in the control group, you didn't get the big-time PD, but you got the business-as-usual PD, whatever that happened to be in your school. Sit in a cafeteria see a PowerPoint on a Wednesday afternoon. Perhaps. Yeah. Uh, key findings, the PD, which was deemed, by the way, as implemented with Fidelity, they did this whole Fidelity study, and it was implemented the way they wanted it to be. 
It ended up having a positive impact on teacher knowledge. Thank goodness, right? Like 93 hours, you hope <laughs> something happened. Um, treatment teachers overall participated in 94, five more hours of math PD than did control teachers. Uh, that's scary <laughs> math there. <laughs> it is scary math. Those control teachers didn't get much of anything. Two PD hours? Um, on average, treatment teachers' knowledge scores on the study-administered math test were 21 percentile points higher than the control teacher scores after the PD was completed. Okay. So that was a pretty significant jump in difference, right? The PD also had a large positive impact on some aspects of instructional practice, particularly on what we just talked about, the conceptual aspects of math and the quality of the mathematic explanations in the classroom. So that was good news. Mm-hmm. Yet, these generally positive impacts on teacher outcomes did not translate to what? Student outcomes. Student outcomes. That's right. So then they're like, what happened, right? Okay, so, so they learned more math. They taught the math better, differently, right? But no months, impact but on no impact teacher, right? Okay. So they try to say, okay, what can we, how do we figure this out? They find that content knowledge and instructional practice are correlated. So those two things are correlated. So that makes sense, right? But when you combine content knowledge and instructional practice, they're not necessarily correlated to student achievement, at least not the dimensions. So we kind of got to get a little wonky and finicky okay. here. But I mean, they only measure particular dimensions of content knowledge, right? You can't teach everything having to do with math in grade four. So they just pick these like discrete parts of it. So they're saying that bottom line is that PD alone on discrete aspects of knowledge really has to completely like knock it out of the park, right? For huh. it to move the needle on student achievement. Because when you think about it, Robert here, at, right? Mm-hmm. Because I mean, targeting knowledge alone, which mm-hmm. seems like a good idea, but I mean, you've got, we all know, you've got the culture of the classroom and the delivery and the mm-hmm. rapport with kids. I mean, all these other things could be potentially caught in PD. Bringing, yeah. right. Oh, that's not taught in PD. Right. right. Um, but all the, I mean, the PD could target a million other things, mm-hmm. but it just targeted these particular aspects of knowledge. So, I mean, not surprisingly, this is not a silver bullet, right? But it did have some positive impact on certain income, I mean, outcomes, just mm-hmm. not the one that we tend to care the most about. As former... Educators, how do both of you feel about PD in general? About PD in general, most of it sucks. Yeah, it's not very good. Actually, it's some, I mean, in my defense, actually, when we had a, um, we had a lot of special needs kids mm-hmm. in my school when I taught back a long, long time ago, and we had a really good um, facilitator come in and teach us how regular mainstreamed, you know, mainstream general ed teachers, how to accommodate special needs in our classroom. I never got that in my teacher education program. So I actually think that was very useful because that was the big mainstreaming era when we, I mean, we're still in that, right? Mm-hmm. We want these kids to be with their general ed peers and teachers always complain, but I didn't learn how to teach these, yep. these kids in, in ed school. So I um, actually did find that useful, but she again was talking about delivery. It wasn't content mm-hmm. knowledge. It was about, you know, how you, I don't know, how do you need to come around and make sure you put a you, shoulder, you your hand on the shoulder of the kid. Methods is the yeah, child. Right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just like you need a piece of blue acetate for the kid with visual problems, yeah. you know, so things like that. Yeah, I mean, my struggle with PD, and I think it's the thing that kind of PD in general struggles with, is alignment to what the teacher actually needs. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's even like your self-identified need for like, I need X is not what someone who has more experience or a more objective eye would necessarily say. So like, you know, if I was teaching, I might say, well, I need help with behavior management because I have this, you know, one child who always gets me off topic and no matter what he does, like the, like within five minutes, we've lost the classroom and we've lost a strain and somebody might come in and say it's X. So there's, and it's actually, yeah. you know, an issue with how you're explaining it. And then my PD would be on how to use the manipulatives in the textbook. So right. there's a lot of alignment issues. Um, yeah. So one thing I did appreciate about kind of coming through the Teach for America route was I did have um, support on staff that I could email at literally all hours of the night and be like, 
how do I teach X? And it was kind of immediate feedback, which yeah, was helpful. Customized. Yeah. I don't think we've cracked that nut yet on how do you really um, individualize PD mm-hmm. and customize it at scale. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like, and I don't know why I feel like we should be doing a better job with that, but teaching is so, I don't know, it sounds so like a cop out, but it's such a complicated endeavor yeah. and complex activity it's hard to just sort of winnow it down to this like set of skills that you don't have. Yeah. And it's um, incredibly it, unlikely that even if you have three fifth grade teachers that they all need the same PD, even if they're teaching the same curriculum in the same school too. Right. But I can't imagine that this wasn't discouraging to Intel math um, because I mean, this is a pretty big PD provider mm-hmm. for math teachers. I know that they get a lot of funding for the National Science Foundation mm-hmm. and some of those grants. So um, not super encouraging news for them, but still kudos for really diving in and not so sometimes we get this um critique that pd's drive through right one shot <laughs> workshop or whatever yep. i mean what can be said about this is it's substantial it's a follow-up for the year so anyway there are promising elements to it so yeah, certainly when you said how many hours it was that was just impressive and kind of heartening i kind of wish i had had that much pd yeah, it was good right? yes. so. Well, thanks very much, Amber. Till next week. All right. And that's all the time we have for this week's Gadfly Show. Till next week. I'm Brandon Wright. I'm Alyssa Twain for the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.